BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever heard someone say that they know a storm is coming because their joints start to ache and they have a migraine? Well, there's a scientific basis to that, but what about general pain receptors during common weather patterns? In past decades, it was difficult to answer such a general science question, but not anymore. Today's guest is Dr. David Schultz from the University of Manchester to talk about his study and how smartphones help his team complete the research. Dr. Schultz, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, first of all, let me let me just say that Dave Schultz is one of the sort of, in my opinion, giants of the field of meteorology. Um, I've, I've known of him and had a chance to interact with him uh, for many years now and followed his work. And people who know meteorology know his name. So it's an honor to have you on the Weather Geeks podcast. Let me just give a little of your background just so that people will know what I'm talking about. Uh, he's a professor of synoptic meteorology at the Center for Atmospheric Science in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences and the Center for Crisis Studies and Mitigation at the University in Manchester in England. And he's been there since 2009, has won multiple teaching awards at the institution. He's a chief editor of the Monthly Weather Review, which is one of the uh, most significant and important journals in the field of meteorology. He's also the author, and I hope to talk to you more about this, of a really nice book called Eloquent Science, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Better Writer, Speaker, and Atmospheric Scientist. There are more things that I'm going to sprinkle in throughout the podcast about Dave, but before I do that, Dave, the question that I ask everyone on the podcast right out, out of the gate, how'd you get interested in meteorology? Well, I think as a child, I was always interested in science and the outdoors. I enjoyed uh, hiking around in the woods, walking around in the streams, turning over rocks to see what lives underneath it. And so it was, I think, natural that I would take some kind of um, earth science or natural science as, as my career. If you talk to my mom, she says that I... That, that she would recognize that I would be a meteorologist at an early age, building um, weather instruments with my dad. And, and um, I grew up south of Pittsburgh. So we had, we listened to Bob Kudzma on KDKA and um, my mother ran into him in the grocery store. And so he sent me a letter and invited me down to the studio, which we never Took, the, took him up on that offer, but it was, it was very nice. And so um, I ended up going to MIT for undergraduate. And at the time, I thought I'm going to be a meteorologist. But at the time, um, MIT didn't have a lot of depth in terms of their undergraduate program. So I kind of dabbled around for a couple of years, took the required courses um, for a generic degree within your science department. And, um, and I made a decision, okay, well, maybe I should not just dabble, but but take a pretty consistent um, curriculum. And so I, I did a lot of geology courses and, and graduated with that. Although by the third and fourth years, I started 
taking more environmental science courses, hydrology, carry manuals, introduction to atmospheric science, and and, and those kinds of courses. And so um, when I started applying to graduate schools, uh, that you know that that background I think um, has helped, and certainly it's been quite useful now in my career because I am in an earth and environmental science department, and and the fact that I know what a difference between a basalt and a granite is, um, I think sometimes you know the ears and and eyes will will raise up a little bit among my colleagues when you know I can I can talk to them about this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting to hear some of your background. It's in some ways very similar to mine because I was always that kid curious about what was going on in nature, building weather instruments. My sixth grade science project was can a sixth grader predict the weather, uh, building weather instruments. But now I'm also in a department that's not a traditional meteorology department, although that's what I come out of at Florida State. But myself and your colleague, we both know very well, John Knox, are in a geography department, our home department at the University of Georgia, though we also have an atmospheric sciences program. Talking with Dave Schultz, now I want to continue with some of his background. 2006 to 2009, he was a professor of experimental meteorology at the University of Helsinki and the Finnish Meteorological Institute. And for 10 years, 1996 to 2006, he worked for NOAA's National Severe Storms Lab as a research meteorologist, and he led a field campaign called IPEX, which is the Intermountain Precipitation Experiment. Has his PS, as you heard from MIT, a master's from University of Washington and a PhD from University of Albany, all very sound and uh, major atmospheric sciences programs. Just a, a small correction, I co-led the IPEX. Okay, well, I, I don't wanna take away the credit of the other scientists. Absolutely, we'll, we'll make sure that our, our, our colleagues understand that. Now, just a curious question, because we wanna kind of dive into your career and some of the interesting science and things that you've done, but you left the United States for the UK. What what prompted that decision? Um, I left the U.S. for Finland in in 2006. Yeah, um, yeah that was an interesting decision, and and um, I think at the time. Um, they were looking for a mesoscale meteorologist. They had a number of students who were working on convective storms of various types and, and impacts of those convective storms in Finland. And it may seem unusual that there are convective storms in Finland, but there are, and, and they can be quite impactful. Um, also, at that time, they had developed what was called the Helsinki Meso Network. And so they had different scales of urban instrumentation um, around Helsinki. And uh, when I went out there for, for the interview, I was really impressed by what I saw. And, and I thought, well, all right, it's different than the Severe Storms Lab, but you know, what a great opportunity. Yeah, no, I, yeah, and I want to correct that because I, I did have in my notes the UK, but I, I, I knew that you did have a stop along the way uh, as well before you are now at the University of, of Manchester. Now, let's let's get into some of your work work because you've been prolific in your career. Uh, according to my production notes here, over 160 research papers, um, many of them strongly uh, couched within the meteorological sector. Um, but one of the most interesting studies and in some of your more recent work, and I want to dive right into it, and then we'll revisit some of your past work later, is work you've done on pain and weather. Mm. Just give us a sort of a 101 on why you started that study and what you found. 
Um, again, I, I didn't start the study. I was a collaborator um, to a study that was already being planned by, by other people. But um, give credit here to Professor Will Dixon and his colleagues in the Center for Epidemiology and the Arthritis Research Center at the University of Manchester. Um, Will is, is very much interested in uh, how um, people uh, record their, their, their symptoms on a daily basis and, and how you can use that information to help uh, treat them and, and give them, you know, minimize the impacts of, of their pain. And this is for people with chronic pain. Will's a rheumatologist, so arthritis um, is, is one of the things that he's most interested in. So Will had seen um, people using uh, smartphone apps to record their symptoms and uh, on, a, on a regular basis, because if, if you go to the doctor once every six months for your condition, what's the first question they're going to ask you? How, how have you been over the last six months? Well, how do, how do you characterize that when your pain fluctuates on a daily or you know, perhaps even hourly basis? So the, the individual recording of the um, pain on a, on a high frequency that then you can either look at yourself if you're a patient or share with your doctor to help kind of figure out what's going on, how often are your pain flares occurring, what might be triggering them. Uh, is very important. And so he, he saw the opportunity with um, smartphones and wearable technology. Um, at the same time, the, the question is, okay, how do we get people to engage with such a project? Um, and again, as a, as a part-time clinical rheumatologist, Will um, had people come to his office and explain, you know, that they felt that there was a link between their weather and the pain that they were experiencing. And so um, he started thinking about it and, and making connections. He ran into my head of department at a campus meeting and said, you know, I'm thinking about this project. Do you have any meteorologists? And, you know, I was more than happy to, to be involved with this project because it's the kind of thing that I like to do in my own science, which is take things that are, um, no one's looked at or, or that have been ignored or are kind of conventional wisdom. Everyone goes, oh yeah, that, that happens and put a different spin on it, a different angle, investigate it in a, in a more deep manner. And so we'll, you know, I won't go into all the details, but over a period of years through a pilot study, through um, appearances on TV shows, and then eventually a, a very tight request um, grant proposal that got funded by Arthritis UK, which is which is now called Versus Arthritis, the leading arthritis charity in the UK. We were able to pull this off. Uh, so for 15 months, we collected data from um, about 10,000 people. Um, and they reported their, their levels of pain, but also other factors about their well-being, their mood, their physical activity, how much time they spent outside, how well they slept, you know, those kinds of things. They had 10 of those things that they were recording. With the GPS sensor in the phone, we were able to then identify their location and, and link that to the closest weather observation in the Met Office network. 
And then, and then there you go. We, it was, a, it was a lot of data. It was 5 million data points. But um, we have produced the biggest data set that is specially designed to deal with this problem. And the fact that we had not just the patients reporting their subjective levels of pain on a regular basis, but we had other information about their mood, their levels of physical activity, so that we could control for things that other studies couldn't control. Because, because naturally, there's a link between um, if the weather's nice outside, then I might go outside. I might undertake more physical activity than I'm used to, and, and hence I might feel pain, which has caused an effect in that situation is not quite so clear. We can unpick that, whereas other studies could not. And you know, as I'm looking through uh, some of the background uh, that our producers is done, have done on, on your study, and I, I actually believe I wrote about this study in a, as well in a, in a Forbes article I, I contributed. That's right. Uh, and days with higher humidity, lower pressure, and stronger winds, which are associated with pressure gradients, uh, in that order, are more likely associated with high pain days. Is that an accurate assessment of what you found? And if so, um, why? That's right. So, so again, we, we collected this data. We had all this data to analyze. And so the, the first main results paper that came out was back in, in uh, October uh, last year. And, and indeed, that's the one that you covered in, in your Forbes um, post. And um, what was unusual about that was because they took a, well, not unusual, but they took a very epidemiological approach to it. Um, they used a technique called case crossover. We had the developer of the case crossover technique as a co-author on the paper to make sure that we did it right and also to extend some of the types of analysis that, that um, he, he had invented. And, um, and so the results then kind of were able to treat these um, weather variables somewhat independently, although, of course, we know that humidity, temperature, and pressure are, are all linked. And, and so the, you know, the results that you mentioned are indeed true. And, uh, you know, that was what the outcome of the study was that was reported. We, you can link the odds ratio, which is a epidemiological measure of, of how much more likely that someone would experience that pain over, over ordinary, you know, normal situation. And, um, and so that, that was that study. And, um, you know, it was, you know, a great study. We got a lot of attention from it. I wanted to see if I could take the, the same data and do a meteorological analysis on it. So I did things like synoptic compositing and, um, and so forth to look at this. And, and so that's where it, it's a little bit more media friendly because you can see the weather maps, you can see um, the regions of high and low pressure on um, on uh, low pain days and, and high pain days, respectfully. Um, and, and so that, that was kind of my, my analysis. And, and this paper had just come out recently in the bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's taking the epidemiological study the, that was collected, the, the data that was collected last um, 
and analyzed last fall and, and taking it in a different direction. But, um, you know, still coming to largely the same conclusion. But now you can actually see for the first time in any of these studies that have ever looked at weather and pain and, and um, you know, I mean, we'd done a literature review on, on this again that just got published recently and of of the 43 um, studies that met our criteria for falling in this literature review, none of them had, had weather maps of, of this kind of analysis. And it wasn't even clear that any of them even had a meteorologist uh, as a co-author on, on, on these studies. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. David Schultz from the University of Manchester. And I believe we're going to call this podcast Cloudy with a Chance of Pain, because I know that's what they've been referring to it as as well. And we're talking about the ways that I mean, anecdotally, I think, you know, we've grown up around, you know, our, our, our elders and people that say that their body can feel weather. And, you know, anecdotally, I always say in my classes that there are certainly some things in our bodies that have some sensitivity to things like pressure, our, our ears, um, the, the evacuated chamber in our ears, joints, and so forth. But this study is a rigorous assessment of whether, and I, I was really interested in your, your paper as a meteorologist, the sort of compositing and the work that you've done, synoptic climatologies or compositing that you've done, because actually, ironically, as we're taping your episode of Weather Geeks today, after we complete this episode, we're taping an episode with my colleague at the University of Georgia, Dr. Andy Grunstein, who has done work on thunderstorm asthma. And so we've been doing it. I'm, I'm actually involved with that as a study, been doing some compositing of synoptic conditions associated with those thunderstorm asthma sort of outbreaks in, in uh, Australia. So very fascinating to see these applications for meteorologists. You mentioned this, but I want to stay there because this is weather geeks. Because then I, when I read those, I mentioned high humidity, low pressure, and stronger winds. There's no specific mention of temperature, although, as you noted, temperature certainly in the mix there. Uh, but why, why is there no sort of temperature explicitly represented in those findings, or is it just an implicit variable? Right. Again, it's it comes down to the different ways in which the studies, the, the two studies, the um, the Dixon et al. epidemiological study and then and then the Schultz et al. study, the weather study were, were done. So in order to do the case crossover analysis, participants had to meet certain criteria. They had to have a certain number of consecutive day reports and, and they had had to have a certain number of those reports within each calendar month because we were doing comparisons between days they felt pain versus days they didn't feel pain. And in order to kind of eliminate climatological issues, we, we kept it within the same calendar month. So, so that whittled down our data set of about 10,000 people down to just under 3,000. With my study, I didn't need to make those uh, rigorous assumptions. I could use the larger data set. So one of the issues might be the fact that we just use different populations of, of the data set. And the other, of course, is, is that the epidemiological methods just simply didn't turn out that temperature was as important as it was in my study. Going back to something I already said in the previous segment, um, of course, Temperature, humidity, pain, uh, sorry, temperature, humidity, pressure are all linked. 
anyway in the atmosphere. And that that's the beauty of the synoptic compositing was I didn't need to assume that these were independent or deal with any autocorrelation between these um, or just correlation between these between these variables. And, and that's, again, a failure, I think, of some of the other and analyses have been published in the literature where they where they assumed independence to do their um, analyses, you know, sometimes just as simple as linear regression. And so we're a little skeptical of some of those approaches. But but to get back to the point, um, that's obviously the next step. And, and we're doing an analysis now, other members of our group, um, that hope to answer which of these variables is the one that is most effective at being related to, to people's pain? Is it the pressure? Is it the temperature? Is it the humidity? Is it a combination of these? Right now, we've just kind of treated them, you know, as kind of, um, you know, they're either, they're either as a whole part of the weather system or, you know, they're more or less, we're treating them independently of each other. But I think this next analysis will be really key. And, and if that's successful, I think that's, that's the holy grail of what we're after, right? Because if it's, if it's the temperature that affects people, well, then that tells us something about how people can ease their um, pain. Even for people who maybe aren't sensitive to weather and pain, um, again, there may be there may be mitigation effects that that people can employ to to do that. And of course, people always say, "Well, go to Spain, you know, go to Florida, go to Arizona, or whatever, if you want, um, you know, to ease your arthritic pain." And you know, so so there's something about being in, in kind of the, you know, the, the warmer climates that, that has something to do with this. Well, well. and that's, that's actually why I asked that question, because you, you often hear anecdotally people say move to warmer climate climates. It'll sort of help with your arthritis and this chronic pain. And so it'll be interesting to sort of see how, uh, how that sort of evolves in your sort of follow on. That's one thing we can address in our study because we just focused on the UK. We would obviously want to do this in Barcelona or something like that. So then we could, we could do a comparison between what are people who live in Barcelona feeling, you know, cause obviously they may or may not be sensitive to weather effects as well. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, sort of putting on, even though I'm a meteorologist by degree, I've been in a geography department 15 years now, so I was thinking, putting on my geographic hat and thinking about sort of, sort of the interesting sort of, uh, sort of finding emerge as you sort of, sort of distribute this study into other geographic regions or at different scales. That'd be interesting. And I really, one of the interesting, we're talking with Professor Dr. David Schultz here about uh, pain and its relationship with weather on two very important studies that have been recently uh, published by him and colleagues. Uh, really interested in your use of the cell phone data because I think we're seeing it increasingly in meteorology crowdsourcing and use of cell phone data, even if from your old stomping grounds at NSSL, they're, they're doing the MPing analysis now where people are reporting with their cell phones what type of precipitation they're experiencing. Um, do you see, just from your lens as sort of a, a scientist and a thought leader in our community, do you see further uses of cell phone data and just in research in our in our field? Do you see that really advancing in other ways? 
beyond just the health yeah, app applications. You see this sort of little handheld device that we know where it's geolocated or co-located at any given moment. But do you see any, have you thought about any from just your lens since you've been in this study, any other ways that we can apply that data? Um, well, certainly there are other ways to go. And, and in our pilot study, um, where we had 20 people and we gave them um, a smartphone and, you know, inside many smartphones is an accelerometer that uh, tells you, you know, if you want to link up with, you know, a video game or, or something like that, how is, how is the phone moving relative to, you know, space and and the um in the pilot what we wanted to do was also capture the accelerometer movements of the phone because if people are able to hold the phone steady and enter their pain levels you know with a steady hand you know that, that might versus someone who, who is arthritic and having a hard time moving moving their hands or, or shaking and entering the data is you know has a very different characteristic then we may be able to achieve a quantitative measure of um how the how the patients are are feeling you know i mean it's not it's not the same as a subjective measure of pain but it, it would be a quantitative measure that we wouldn't have access to. The problem with that was that the, the phones, the, the um, accelerometers were, were taking too much power. And, and so the phone would be dead by the end of the day, which obviously for, for some semi-active people who aren't sitting around, um, you know, at home or at their desk all day would, would be a problem. And, and so that... Um, aspect of, of the pilot study was not conducted um, for the for the big rollout when we went UK wide um, and, and had the over 10,000 people sign up. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Schultz. And we're talking about interesting ways that he and his colleagues have been thinking about pain in our bodies something you, you you often think about so what factors that's something i like to use when we talk about research and development r d we as scientists are just curious about things but increasingly these days you have politicians and people are like well so what with this research that we're funding for the national science foundation or in this case uh i, I believe you said it was some type of asthma or, or arthritis or, charity or arthritis charity there in the uk funding this research and so i think with this this type of research to so what is clear. So I want to kind of pivot there. What are what do you think the ultimate outcomes are for the public for research like this? Why would uh, this arthritis organization be interested in funding this and sort of from an end game perspective? Well, um, <laughs> looking at it from our perspective, I think it was really clear why they should do it. It was it was going to be a great study. You know, a lot of citizen scientists involved. I mean, you know, Will will Dixon, our, the, the leader of this project, will say time and time again, you know, when he designed the project, he, he would have been ecstatic with a thousand people to participate. The fact that 13,000 people downloaded the app and over 10,000 people downloaded the app and also started entering data, I think is you know, exceeded our wildest expectations. And, and so we need to thank those people in the Cloudy with a Chance of Pain project who did this. And, and I think 
some of the statistics that that come out of that is that even after um, you know six months of entering data, one out of seven people were still entering data on a semi-regular basis. Oh, wow. That's, that's incredible. I mean, think about how many apps you've downloaded to your phone, never opened, opened once, um, you know, engaged with a few times in the first week or two, and then stopped. The fact that these people were so heavily engaged coming back on a daily basis to enter their pain reports so that we could have a huge data set speaks volumes, A, to, to you know, their dedication, their resilience, and, and of course, their desire to, to find out an answer to this question. We know from not only our study, but other studies that have looked at this, that about three quarters of the people who suffer with chronic pain believe in some link between their pain and the weather. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily viewed um, in the same way by, by even their doctors. You know, these, some of these patients go to their doctors, tell them that they think that there's a link between the weather and pain, and, and the doctors are, are very dismissive, and, and it frustrates these patients to, to no end. And you really can't blame the doctors in this situation. In this literature review that I told you that we did, we looked at um, 43 studies. 41 of them had analyzed um, Sea level, sea level pressure or station pressure as part of their um, analysis. Of those 41 studies, 20 found no link between pressure and pain. 11 reported that high pressure or, or increasing pressure over time was associated with higher pain. And seven reported that low pressure or decreasing pressure was associated with higher pain. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty if you just look at the literature at face value. But, but of course, you can't look at every single study as equal. Our study had much uh, larger data set. We, we did the analysis in several different ways. We've only published two of them so far. But, but we know that all our results, no matter how, whatever method we use, um, tells us the, the same thing. And I think more importantly, we know that um, this result is, is different than, than the others, again, because of, of the, the approaches that we've taken that, that are better than these other studies. So, um, of course, like you said, this agrees anecdotally with what people say. Most people do report that lower pressure, rain, cold, wet, conditions are, are those that um, tend to trigger trigger pain events in them. And so, so when we, we tell people this, we kind of get one of two responses. The, the first response is, great, now I can tell my doctor, you know, there's a scientific study out there that, you know, that has looked at this seriously and, and has, you know, a much more definitive answer than we've seen in the literature previously. And, and, and so this gives these people, you know, cheers to, to no end. But then there's also the minority of people who may not have suffered from chronic pain or go, well, that was another wasted study. Um, you know, we knew this all along. Grandma knew it all along. You know, whatever it is, they're, they're really skeptical. They think that it was a waste of money. But again, there was that um, inconsistency. There was no consensus in the literature 
until, um, you know, again, because of the variety of different methods, you know, sloppiness in the analysis, different analysis approaches, small data sets. You know, I mean, often these studies were done with 20 people or 30 people. You know, how can how can you filter out the effect of the weather on people's pain when there's so many other factors? And we're not saying that the weather is the most dominant way that people experience pain. Of course not. But it does influence it in a measurable way that we can show with you know multiple analysis approaches with a big enough data set. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. David Schultz uh, from the University of Manchester. I want to pivot the discussion now because I, I know you're doing a lot of other things. I'm just curious about what are some of the other things you're up to these days in terms of... <laughs> Yeah, um, so we've got a paper that uh, is in early online release in the bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, and it's done with um, some colleagues um, in Europe. And it is a the kind of first English translation that's widely available of Bergeron. 1928. It was published in uh, a Norwegian journal. It was his PhD dissertation. And um, for people who don't know Bergeron, I mean, he was uh, one of the members of the people call it the Norwegian um, School of Meteorology, which was located in Bergen, Norway. Um, He was a Swede. But but he ended up working there. And um, many people claim that he's one of the biggest um, reasons why why the uh, Bergen school methods, cold fronts, warm fronts, occluded fronts, the development of a wave cyclone going through this life cycle. It's one of the reasons why this is this conceptual model has been globally accepted because he was a big promoter of it. And so um, I read about Bergeron 1928 when I was in grad school. I was studying occluded fronts, and Bergeron was um, the discoverer, I guess you would say, of the occluded front, conceived it and, and developed it, and it ended up in the conceptual model of the Norwegian cyclone. Um, so I was always interested in this paper, but because it was in German and I don't read German and, uh, you know, was unable to, to read it. Um, then uh, with online um, translators, with um, being able to discover people who had the ability to translate these um, articles, basically reached out to them and, and over a period of years and going through a number of translators until we got it right, um, we were able to, to translate it. And so that we wrote up an article to accompany that. And in doing so, um, like I said, that'll, that's available online now and, and um, you know, should be in the you know, final form shortly. I haven't seen the page proofs yet. But revisiting that literature um, from you know, the period right after some of the main research on um, the Norwegian cyclone model where was published allowed me to look critically at, at some of the analyses they were doing. And what we've seen is that elements of this other conceptual model, the Shapiro-Kaiser model, actually appeared in the literature back in the 20s, back in the 30s, even as late as um, 1950s, 
the Norwegians were still advocating for some of these things like the bent back front um, that is common, like I said, in this other model called the Shapiro Kaiser model. What I like about this work is it kind of brings together what I started in meteorology. My master's thesis was on occluded fronts. My PhD thesis was on comparing the Norwegian cyclone model to the Shapiro-Kaiser model and understanding the environments in which those two different types of cyclone, extratropical cyclones, evolved. And so now I'm able to, again, with my one of my co-supervisors uh, of my PhD project, um, Dan Kaiser, revisit the historical roots of the Shapiro-Kaiser model and say, you know, this was not um, lost on, on the Norwegians, which then raises the question, well, if they understood that some cyclones had these elements and others didn't, where did that knowledge go? Why was that knowledge faded away or dispersed or, or not carried through? in the 40s and 50s, you know, into into the 60s. Why did we end up with the Norwegian cyclone model right. absent these other factors? Oh, I, I'm so glad I asked that question about what I'm <laughs> up to because that was just a, a beautiful geek out on some synoptic <laughs> in the history of it. And we use that term affectionately on weather geeks, um, just about some of the history of the, you know, the, the Norwegian school of media. I mean, if you are a meteorologist or you're in meteorology or an atmospheric sciences program, you're going to learn about the, the, the legacy of, of what the Norwegians have, did for meteorology. And so I think Dave's discussion there just did a nice job of sort of framing some of the historical context, but also mentioned some of the more contemporary synopticians, if you will, the Mel um, Dan Kaisers and Mel Shapiro's of the world. Mel, Mel's a close friend and colleague of mine. We had similar Florida State roots. So I've had a chance to really get to know him over the years. That's thing before I let you go. Why'd you write the book Eloquent Science? Um, interesting question. I, um, when I was in Oklahoma, I was involved with the research experience for undergraduates program that Daphne Ledoux runs, the REU program. REU, shout out to Daphne Ledoux and Jim Ledoux. <laughs> got, a, got a student of ours in our program in that REU right now. It's a wonderful program, and, and it, was, it was the highlight of, of the year for me, being, you know, showing these undergraduates, you know, the fun in, in research and, and teaching them, you know, the research, um, you know, has a lot of bumps along the way, and it'll be frustrating, and it's, and it's a slow burn, but, but near the end of their summer program, they're really burning it on and, and it's all coming together for them. Anyway, I was doing workshops on writing and presenting for those students because as part of their experience, they would have to write and they'd have to give presentations. Um, one year, they scheduled the AMS weather analysis and forecasting conference at the same time as the final week of presentations for the REU students. So I wasn't able, I'd already signed up for the WAF conference. And um, so I wasn't there for, for the final presentations, which were always exceptional. They were wonderful presentations by the students. And I was sitting at this conference being bored out of my mind by the horrible presentations that some of the people were delivering. And I thought, you know, the, this message, these presentations that I give to these undergraduates needed to reach a wider audience. And, and my, my notes, my, my slides had 
were just kludged together over the years. There was no kind of organized presentation for it. And so that was when, I guess it was 2005, that's when I decided this needs to be a book, needs to have a wider audience, and, um, you know, the rest is history. The, the AMS, you know, happily, you know, decided to, to, to publish it, which I was ecstatic for. So it gets, you know, promoted and, and, you know, through the society and it reaches that, that target audience. And, um, I'll, I'll reveal it here for the first time. Um, I've just signed a contract, still waiting for the other half of the party to, to sign up, but it will now be translated into Chinese well, it's already been translated into Chinese, and the Chinese Meteorological Press will be um, publishing a Chinese version of Eloquence. All right. Well, we, we love some breaking news on Weather Geek. <laughs> Thank you for allowing us to break that news for you. Um, where can people find you on social media or on the web, Dave? Um, at Eloquent Science and then eloquentscience.com. Yeah. Um, all one word. Yeah, this has been this as I knew it would. This has been awesome because we again I, we t- we're talking to someone that you know from afar I've admired and followed. So I'm really honored to have you on the show. Before we go though, I have to do the geek of the week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Alexa Adderley. She is a meteorological technician from the sunny Bahamas. She is constantly writing articles explaining her favorite weather phenomena, including thunderstorms and hurricanes. She is also a self-proclaimed weather bane, and that's at hashtag weather bay, B-A-E. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for the Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. Dave, so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm very flattered to be invited. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And this has been Weather Geeks. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.